But we're looking forward to our conference in a couple weeks. We ask you most of all to be in prayer for this conference. Um, Justin's going to be bringing a couple messages on how uh, the Reformation relates to some of the Catholic Church's teachings and some of the error that uh, is involved in Catholicism. And having come out of that um, religion, I'm very blessed to be and eager to, to listen to what he has to say. And then also, all alongside of that, we're going to be having Costi Hinn, and um, he's a nephew of Benny Hinn, as Ken has mentioned before, and he was gloriously saved about, I think, about three years ago uh, out of that whole Word of Faith movement. And he used to travel around with his uncle Benny Hinn on the jet and do, I guess, security and all kinds of things. And it was through Justin Peters' ministry, uh, speaking of discernment in the Word of Faith movement, and exposing a lot of that, that he actually came to faith. So it'll be exciting to have both of them here and see how they interact and, and that. But he's going to be bringing a couple messages, just two messages, one on Friday night and, and one on Saturday morning. Uh, and uh, I think Friday night he'll be sharing his testimony, which should just be really interesting. And how that also on Saturday he's going to uh, talk about how the gospel um, divides. And it can even divide families. And I'm sure he has experienced that firsthand, and so he'll be speaking out of Matthew on that. And then, of course, we'll open up Friday night with uh, the concert pianist Dave Talbot, and we're looking forward to that. He's always a blessing. He leads us in some of the, the, the wonderful hymns that only he can do uh, on that piano, the way he plays. It's just amazing. And so um, it, it, we'll be looking forward to that time as well. And so uh, the time on Friday is 6 o'clock. Saturday morning, it's 8.30. We kind of bump things up a little bit just because we have two speakers this year. And so we'll be looking forward to that. But most of all, I ask you to be praying that God would draw people to this conference that need to hear the truth. And uh, we'll do our best to get the word out there and things like that. I'm trying to line up an interview with KFAX for both Justin and um, uh, Costi Hinn. And so that should get the word out as well. But if you can pick up some of those flyers on your way out and just hand them out, whatever you want to do with them. Just make sure they get into hands that uh, would be interested in that kind of a subject matter. What is the greatest commandment? We started this almost three weeks ago in, in, in Romans chapter 13. And I want to read for us the text, the text of our scripture this morning. And um, we'll begin in verse 8 and just read down to verse uh, 10. So Paul writes in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now last time we were together, we introduced this text, and we were just to remember what we were, where we were, we came out of chapter 12, and we were, Paul was showing us a little bit about what love is like, and uh, he showed us all the way back. In verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, Let love be genuine. And then he says, Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And so out of that verse, we defined love, basically that it, first of all, it has to be sincere, right? It has to be genuine. It has to be without hypocrisy. And that can only come from God, that kind of love. And then, secondly, it has to be discriminating, discriminatory. And you say, well, what? that doesn't sound like love. You know, in the culture we live in today, love is this, this sick sentiment where we all just kind of hold hands and give a big hug and, oh, we just love each other so much. And, you know, discriminating, it's not. But really, biblical love is just that. It's sincere, but it's also discriminating because he says in verse 9 of chapter 12 of Romans, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And the Greek word there, 
sincere comes from that word hypocrisy or hypocritical. It means without a mask. And so we need to make sure that our love is sincere and that it hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Do you know that real love, genuine love, sincere love that can only come from God doesn't love everything? It just doesn't. It discriminates what it loves. Because this verse tells us that it hates what is evil. And it clings to what is good. See, and if we truly love, if we want to truly express Christian love, then we need to make sure that when we see violence of any kind, hate of any kind done to other people by whatever means they may do it, and if that's the case, we will love for them. We will have a love, a sincere love for those people. And we will desire peace, not division. And even those who are guilty of the violence, sometimes, you know, you, you see somebody do something horrible and they get arrested. You know, that happened last week, right? And everybody says, yeah, he got what he deserved, this guy. And you almost think, oh, I'd throw the book at him. You know, there's a special place in hell for somebody like that. And we almost rejoice in the fact that literally someone's life, even though he has caused probably irreparable harm to others, is on the skids. Because we think somehow his behavior justifies us feeling that way. And the Bible says no. We are called to love even people like that with the love of Christ. And that's why I said it's not something that we can do within ourselves. You know, we've all had people in our lives that are difficult to love. They're just difficult. They push our Christian character. They push our Christian love to the, to the limit. And we think, man, this guy, you know, he's really good. Give me the grace to deal with this person. And their behavior may be totally wrong, whatever, but it does not justify harboring hate in our own lives toward one another as believers, let alone someone even outside the church. Now, the Bible does speak of hating sin. That's a good thing. You know, it's, it's important that we love those things that honor Christ and we hate those things that do not. But remember, the behavior is what we're talking about there. Not necessarily the person. And so we want to work for peace in all those things. Uh, We will hate things like lying, but we will love the truth. And at the same time, even love those who are doing the lying. (laughs) That's the kind of Christian love that we're called to have. And so it tells us how is this love to to function. And it tells us in verses 10 to 13, there in Romans, it says, as regards brotherly love, it kind of lays it out for us. It says, be devoted to one another. As regards honor, honor others above yourself. As regards zeal, never be lacking. As regards service, always keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. As regards hope, joyful. As regards affliction, patient. As regards prayer, faithful. As regards the needs of God's people, sharing. As regards hospitality, pursuing. And so it tells us kind of what this love is like. It's it's sincere. It's discriminatory. But then he also kind of lays out for us how it is to function within the body. And that kind of swept us in to Romans chapter 13. And the, the beginning, he's in, in chapter 12, he's talking mostly about this love, how it causes us to relate to one another. Before that, he talked about early on in Romans chapter 12, he talked about how this transformative love who, which invades our lives the moment we come to Christ, it changes us, it transforms us, right? Old things have passed away. The Bible says, behold what? All things become new. 
So we're not the same person we were before we came to Christ. And as a result of that, our relationship with Christ is different. That's why right there at at the beginning, he begins in chapter 12, he says, you know, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, based on what? On everything he just told us about being justified, about having the righteousness of God, all in the first 11 chapters. But then he says, because of that, you have a different relationship with God now. And as a result of that, you should present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Don't be conformed to this world, he says. That's not good. But be, look what it says, transformed in verse 2 of Romans 12, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, not only did your relationship with God change because you're saved now, you have Christ in your life, you've repented of your sin, you've come to Christ, you said, you know what, there's no way out of this hellhole I am in, I'm carrying the burden and weight of my sin, I'm done, help me, Jesus, (laughs) save me. Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. And when you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God invades your life with his love and his spirit, and he takes all that that sin, and he basically covers it with the blood of Christ. And he makes you a new person in Christ. See, so many Christians today don't understand that. There's so many Christians walking around thinking that they're two people. You know, they have the sin nature, and they have the the new nature, and every day, boy, it's this, this war. And if there's a spiritual war going on, don't get me wrong. But as we learned earlier in Romans, Paul made it very clear that that old nature, when you come to Christ, that old nature's gone. It's dead. You're dead and, and, and alive in Christ. Died with Christ. You've risen with him. And so don't think that, you know, you're, you're, you're this kind of schizophrenic person as a believer running around. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people today who are calling themselves Christians and they haven't experienced the transformative work of God and the Holy Spirit and Christ in their life. So they're playing church. They come to church. They try to do everything that's right. They try to read their Bible. They try to do all this stuff. And they're getting frustrated. And the answer sometimes is, well, that's just the old self. You know, you have to Put on the new self and, and, and kind of, you know, don't listen to the old self. And you got this conflict going on. Well, my Bible tells me that my old nature's dead. And when something's dead, it means it has no life. It has no way to affect change in you as, individual, as an individual. And so it's important for us to realize that. That as believers, for the first time, when God invades our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, for the first time, we are free to do what pleases God. Before that, everything we did, even if it was good, by society's measures. I mean, how many of you did good things before you were saved? Don't be shy. Sure. Most of us did. We'd help somebody out, or we'd serve, or we'd do whatever. And somehow... Maybe we were in a religion that taught us, you know, the more good you do, the greater the blessing from God you get. And so you're kind of caught in this continuous vortex of doing, doing, doing. God, please bless me. Please bless me. And it works in reverse, too. Oh, no, I missed church. Oh, man, God's going to get me. I mean, I know Christians even think that way. That's not what God's word tells us. And so we have to understand that our spiritual life in Christ is something that is new. It's transformative. And you will know. You will know that you have been saved. You don't have to guess it. And you know what? Not only will you know, but others will know. Because they will see that change affected in your life. problem is sometimes people raise the hand, they say the prayer, they do whatever the the evangelist tells them to do, but nothing's happened. There's been no spiritual change, but they are told there has been because you went through this prayer or you said this or you did that or you got baptized or you joined the church. So now you're, quote, a Christian. 
I challenge you to search through the Gospels to see what Jesus says, what makes a disciple of his. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus say, you know, if you just pray this prayer, then you'll be one of my followers. You don't see that. Or you know what? If you you just join my little group, then then you'll be okay. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, we have an example in the Gospels of someone who did join his group. Remember? Judas. Think about it. This guy was with Christ for three and a half years. Saw everything that he did. All the miracles, everything. And not even the other disciples suspected him. Maybe he was even deceived himself. That's why the Bible gives us commands over and over and over again. Make sure that your faith is true. Make sure that you're in the faith. Don't just take it for granted. Because you prayed some prayer when you were five that you're, you're saved. Because frankly, you may not be. Because a prayer does not save you. God saves you. And he does that through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he takes us through this and he says, you have a different relationship with God. And then in chapter 12, he goes on and he says, you have a different relationship with each other because of what Christ has done in your life. And then in chapter 13, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And you're like, where's he going with this? What he's telling us, Paul is trying to get us to see that, you know what? When you come to Christ, when Christ affects change in your life, it is across all boundaries. It's not just, you know, you and Christ and nobody knows about this change. No. Your change, change of your relationship with God is first and foremost. Your change in your relationship with other believers And then your change even with those who are outside of Christ. Even those who are in government and authority over you. Your faith in Christ dictates how you interact with them. How you behave towards them. And that's why he says here that you know what? Even the authorities are put in place by who? By God. President Trump just didn't win an election because he was a smart guy or he was ingenious or he was whatever. That had nothing to do with President Trump. It had everything to do with God. And you know what? If you think I'm being political, I'd be saying the same thing if Hillary Clinton would have won the election. Because God puts those in authority over us. We don't. I mean, we go through the ballot box and we think somehow that we're... You know, God is overseeing all that. And so it's important that we acknowledge the sovereignty of God in our relationship with him and our relationship with each other, but then also with civil authorities. And we've been looking at chapter 13 now for several weeks. But he gets down to verse 8. And he's talking about paying taxes. And then he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And so he points out to us that, you know what, there is a debt that we can never, ever pay. I mean, I don't think anybody lives to be in debt. I've never met somebody that said, I just can't wait to get up tomorrow and just charge every credit card I have to the fullest so I can't pay anything. That's going to be so much fun. I can't wait for them to start calling. And then, oh, it's, just, it's going to be hilarious. No. You know, some of us have fallen into debt. And, and we can testify to the, the hard work and the, the, the pain and the, the, the burden that that is. And that's not to say that all debt is wrong either. And we talked about that two weeks ago. There's instances in the Bible where it says, hey, there's times when you're going to owe somebody something or they're going to owe you something. And it's okay. It lays down a kind of prescription. If it's somebody in need and you're loaning them something, well, you shouldn't charge them interest. You shouldn't take advantage of their, 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 their impoverished state. And so this verse 
Paul uses it as kind of a, a, a transition. And he says, okay, we've been talking about governing authorities, paying taxes, that's fine. But now I want you to understand that there's, there's, you shouldn't owe anyone anything. But love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so last time we were together, we looked at love's debt. Love's debt. And we realized that love's debt is large. It's not something that we can just repay. It's not something that, you know, is, is, is easy to work off. You can't. Love will always have the interests of the creditor in view. And so when it tells us here that we are to love each other, we need to remember that, you know what, it was only by the love of God, right, that this whole thing ever even got started. Don't think for one moment, if you're there today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that, oh, no, the, the reason I'm a believer in Jesus Christ is because I chose God, and, and I'm the one that made up this decision, and I finally figured it out, and I am the one, the reason that I'm going to be in heaven one day is because of me. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says, you know what? That God loved us before we could ever even love him. That even before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God somehow, in his wisdom, in his sovereign, he chose us to be in Christ. What What an amazing thing. And so this debt of love is not something that we need to work off as believers, but we need to express it. And it has to be shown, first of all, to fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. In John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you. This is something that's new, Jesus is saying. And he says that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, by this love that you have for one another, by this, Jesus says, all men will know that you are my followers, that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. I mean, I wish the church of Jesus Christ would figure this verse out. Because you know what? Over the years, not just this church, any church, we haven't done a good job of showing the world how much we love each other. We just haven't. As a matter of fact, I mean, sometimes in churches, it's just the opposite. It's almost like you're trying to show the world how much they hate each other as Christians. The way they treat each other, the way they talk about each other. And it's just wrong. It's not honoring to Christ. See, to serve other believers, to serve other brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved, when you do that, I got some good news for you. Guess who you're serving? You're not serving them. You're serving your Savior. You're serving Jesus Christ. You're serving God. Ephesians 4.2 tells us that this kind of love, this godly love, is characterized by humility. It's characterized by gentleness. It's characterized by patience. We need patience, right? Did you ever grow impatient with people? Man, it's, it's like my weekly thing. It's grow impatient with people. We need to have the the character of forbearance in our lives as an expression of godly love. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, you know, a lot of times when we're provoked to anger, we're just responding in the wrong way. See, Paul's not saying that people aren't going to try to provoke you. Oh, they will. But if you have the love of Christ reigning and ruling in your heart, it's going to be a lot harder because you're going to be looking to Christ. How do I respond to this? He goes on, he says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wow. Are you telling me 
that when somebody does something to me that is totally unjust and wrong, I'm not to take that into account? That, that kind of means I'm not jotting that down. I'm not writing in my little notebook, yeah, you know, Sunday, he said this to me. I'm going to get this guy back. And at the right time, in the right place, boom, zinger, I'm just going to let him have it. I'm going to be patient with it, right? With it, but, but I'm going to get him back. See, that's wrong. Because it says it does not take into account a wrong suffered. We can't do this in our humanity. We can't do this in and of ourselves. We need the love of Christ in our hearts. He says it does not seek its own, uh, does not uh, uh, take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then what's Paul say at the end? Let's say it together. Love never fails. Love never fails. See, the greatest test of godly love is a willingness to sacrifice our own desires, our own welfare, our own needs for the needs and even the desires and the welfare of others. Now, that's not going to happen all the time as believers because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen body. I understand that. But that should be the goal. That should be the game plan. Even to the point of forfeiting your own life. Wow. John 15, 18, Jesus said, He laid down the example. Greater love has no man than this, what? Than one lay down his life for his friends. First John 3.16, John reminds us, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so you ask yourself simply, boy, this kind of love, I can see why its debt is massive. But secondly, in verse 9, he continues, and he talks about the duty of love. He talks at the end there about Love, loving one another has fulfilled the law, and we're going to get to that. But he continues in verse 9, he says, For the commandments, and then he begins to list some of the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. What's going on here? Why does he bring up these commandments? Now remember that, you know, in the, in the Jewish mindset... I mean, it was all about the law. It was all about keeping the law. And when they realized they couldn't keep God's law, what'd they do? They made up their own law, (laughs) right? They said, well, it must mean this, so we're going to make up our own traditions. And that's why Jesus kept on saying to the Pharisees and others, you have heard it said this. This is the tradition, but this is what I'm going to tell you. And he always went toe-to-toe on to them on that because they were always felt they felt justified in the fact that you know what on the sabbath day they didn't pick up a stick that was so long and carry it a certain distance so therefore they were without sin i mean it was just kind of crazy some of the things they made up as far as their own understanding of keeping god's law but jesus said remember a new commandment i give to you that you love one another and so this distinguishing mark of being a christian is love it's a godly love It's love that not only marks us out as believers, but Paul says it's love that fulfills what? The law. It fulfills the law. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding on this. A lot of Christians think, well, I'm a a Christian now. I can take, I don't read the Old Testament. I just throw out the law. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I'm free in Christ. I'm, I'm saved by the blood of Christ. Well, yeah, all that's true, except you still need the law. The law is God's word. It still applies to us. It's it's still there desiring to be kind of a tool of instruction in our lives. We don't just write it off. And so what Paul does is he kind of changes things up. Before, it was all about the law. Remember when Jesus would approach the Pharisees and say, well, you say you haven't committed adultery. 
But what did Jesus say? But you know what? If you've lusted for a woman in your heart, <laughs> you've committed adultery. That blew their minds. They're like, wait, 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 what? Isn't it all just about keeping the law? If we don't do this thing, and there's a lot of believers today that fall into that legalistic mindset. You know, oh, I don't do this, you know. I don't drink, smoke, or run around with those that do, you know. And, and then we think, oh, we're okay as a result of that. And we have this little thing checked off in our mind. But God says, what's in your heart? Why do you come to church every week? Why are you here this morning? Those are questions that God would ask you. Well, what do you mean, why am I here? I'm a Christian. Okay, but why are you here? Have you ever thought why you come to church on Sunday morning? Is it the same reason every week? Does it get into a routine? Just kind of, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. Be very careful with that kind of mindset. Because if we don't come here every week expecting God to affect change in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives through the word of God, if we're not expecting anything, guess what? You're going to walk out those doors the same way you came in. This is, I mean, you may have had a good time, but other than that, spiritually, it's a waste of time. So we need to prepare ourselves. We need to be proactive about it. We don't just drag ourselves out of bed Sunday morning after a tough Saturday night and, you know, we've been up till three in the morning. Oh, just, you know, help me keep awake while this guy's up there blabbering on about whatever. You know, that's just, God's not going to bless that. I guarantee you, if you have to go to work early Monday morning, I called you at midnight said, hey, you want to go to In-N-Out and get a burger? You'd probably think, what are you, nuts? i got to work in the morning. That wouldn't be good preparation for you to have a good beginning of your work week. We sat at In-N-Out and got a burger and ate it and sat there and talked for three hours. And I sent you home at 3.30. And you had to get up at 5 to go to work. That wouldn't be wise. And you know that. And we need to have that same healthy respect for our time together as believers, especially when it's so limited nowadays. So when you come here, I pray that you're expecting God to affect change in your heart. It's after all, Romans 5, 5 tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts as believers. I mean, God has poured into our hearts a capacity to love each other in a way that the world does not understand, nor could it ever accomplish. We have been given that capacity for love in our salvation. It's something that's just packed in there with it. And so we can draw out of that love that we already have. As believers, we don't need to pray for God. God, please give me more love for each other. No. The Bible says that we're sufficient in Christ, that he's already given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We don't need to beg God for more love. We just have to use and access and be willing to apply the love that he's already put there for us. That's our indebtedness. We're to love others. And that capacity for love is planted in the heart of every Christian. I would even go as far as to say this. If, if, you, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you, you do not demonstrate this kind of godly love in some form or fashion. I don't care who you are. You probably don't have a relationship with God. You probably don't. You probably have not been transformed by his love. Because with that transformation comes this capacity to express a love in a way that you would say, man, where's this coming from? And so we have this, this duty to love. Now he expresses this to us in a wonderful way. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22.
Now, Jesus just got done being questioned by the, the Sadducees about the resurrection. He's dealing with them because they didn't believe in the resurrection. You know, that was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I always used to get them mixed up in the college until a professor told me, you know, the way to keep this straight is just remember the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And I thought, got it. That stuck with me all those years. So in verse 34, he begins to talk about this great commandment. And he says, it says there, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, (laughs) asked him a question to test him. It's always those lawyers, right? Teacher, he says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wow. I mean, he just summarized all the Mosaic law into two commandments. He says, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In James chapter 2, verse 8, he calls it, he says this, if you rely If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, the royal law, he calls it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, then you're committing sin. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Verse 11, he says in in James 2, he says, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Kind of makes sense, right? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So this royal law, James says, is that, you know what? Basically, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now go back to Romans 13. So he says here in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Now, he's not desiring here to list all of the Mosaic law. He doesn't have time, probably, nor space. He's just giving a sampling. This is what the Spirit of God put on his heart to write down. And so Paul gives us this summation of the law. He gives one law, the law of love. And he says that this one law of love fulfills all of the law in our hearts. Um, now when you stop and you think of what Paul is saying here, he's saying all the Ten Commandments, let's just use them as an example. Here he names four of the ten the negative ones, do not, do not, do not. And they're not even necessarily in order as you find them elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not his point. He's just sharing commandments that affect each other on a horizontal plane. See, you have to remember that love and the law are not mutually exclusive. This is unfortunate, but a lot of people, when they come to Christ, they think that somehow the law gets left in the dust, and now it's all about love, and we just don't worry about that. It's all about grace. See, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, no, love is what? Fulfilling the law. The law doesn't go anywhere. The law is still there, but now it's fulfilled in Christ. In fact, you can take all of those Ten Commandments and you can summarize all the Ten Commandments into two statements. And this is what Jesus said. This is what Paul said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
In those two commandments, you have all of the law and the prophets together, the scripture tells us. And this is the point that Paul is making for us. If you say, well, how can we fulfill the law of God as believers? How can I keep the law? The answer is love. The answer is love. That godly love that we've spoken about. Because it's that love that fulfills the law of God. Now here he mentions four of these commandments, the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, and the tenth. For whatever reason, he leaves out the fifth and ninth. But it's important to understand how these commandments work. Just take the Ten Commandments, for example. There's a little chart there for you. And you notice the first four are kind of a blue or whatever color that is. I don't know. I'm colorblind. Uh, Grid, all right? And these, the first four commandments basically deal with how we're relating to God. What it has to do with God. And the rest of those, the six, basically have to do with your fellow human beings. So the whole law is collected into one statement. The law is summed up in this one statement. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So the key to obeying the law, which we're called to do, is love. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you love your wife, you're not going to go commit adultery. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to do it. You know, if you love your wife, you, you don't have to, you know, I was thinking about this the other night, you know, we laid down, we went to bed. I thought, how weird would it be if I turned over to my wife and in bed and said, hey, dear, I just want you to know, tonight I'm not going to kill you. I won't murder you tonight. Good night. <laughs> what in the world? Where did that come from? Right? I mean, that would just be plain weird. She doesn't have to worry about that. Why? Because I love her. Okay, that, that, that kind of stuff's not happening. You know, and, and see, this is where the love of God, the love of Christ Yun out in our hearts affects change into our lives. We're not going to go out on a killing spree if we have the love of Christ in our lives. We're not going to go out and rip things off and steal things. Why? Because we know that that would not be honoring to Christ. That would not be honoring to God. I'm not going to take what doesn't belong to me. And sometimes, you know, you hear about these news stories and, you know, some guy finds a packet of money laying on the street, you know, $250,000 bank deposit from some big company and he turns it in. <laughs> and they're like, why did you, why, what possessed you to, you know? And they're like, what's well, this the right thing to do? Right? I mean, it's, you want to do the right thing. So love has not come to replace the law. We're not saying that the old is gone and the new is here and now it's all about love. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that love is fulfilling the law. For the first time, you can actually do what the law tells us to do by the love of God. Love is to give us a bottom line so that we understand how God's law can be fulfilled. See, God is not after just compliance. He's not after just outward obedience. You know, I worked in a restaurant in, in Park City, Utah, over a winter one time. And I was just kind of like the bar back there, and they didn't really serve alcohol, just sodas and stuff. But I worked there, and I remember they'd have inspections once in a while. And I remember before, and it was a pretty clean restaurant, but, I mean, it wasn't perfect. So I remember going back in the kitchen sometimes and seeing some things like, ugh, you know. But I remember when the inspector came, Boy, everybody had to, you know, overtime, we had to clean this place up and make sure that it was tip-top shape. But then it just went back to the same old things. See, that's compliance. See, that's, some people, they, they make this profession of faith and they comply and they, they start coming to church and they start doing things and they think, oh, okay. But there's no change in their heart. There's no transformation. So they're just, it's just outward compliance for them. And then we wonder why 
you know, a year or so, they're not around. <laughs> because they were never saved. That's what John tells us, right? They went out from us, they left us, because they were never really part of us. And that's important to know. I mean, it was the Pharisees who would say, well, we don't commit adultery, we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't covet, we don't do these things. And what did Jesus say? No, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Because they were definitely committing adultery with their minds. They were murderous in their thoughts with hate. They would literally steal anything they could and they got away with it. So if all you have is this external law and this external definition... You could actually fulfill it without fulfilling its intent. And that's why Scripture says that the intent is that you love so that you do not commit adultery. Not because you're afraid of getting caught. You do not kill, not because you just don't want to go to prison, but because you know it would be dishonoring to God because God values life. Look back at... at, at the book of Exodus, and we're just going to take the top ten here quickly and hit on these because it's important that we understand the law of God and how this applies to our lives as Christians. Now remember, there's, there's two commandments, right, that Jesus and the Bible say that all the law the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, by the way, hinge on. And remember what they are? Love the Lord your God, right, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those involve love. So look at this first commandment here in verse 3. Chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And remember, I said the first four relate to God and then the second relate to God's relationship uh, to, to him, or to each other. So it begins here in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is, this is a perfect description of this love we're talking about. Because first of all, love is what? It's loyal. Love is loyal. Love is not just sentimental feeling. It's loyal. When two people come to be married, you know what? The one thing I want them to understand is they're making a commitment. There's going to be days when you feel, yeah, I wish I wasn't married. But that doesn't matter because you made a commitment. Okay? You're going to be loyal. Loyal love is true. It's not fickle. It's not single-minded. It's not, doesn't have other gods. You can't worship God and have everything else as God's in your life at the same time. True love toward God will mean that there is no love for anything other than God himself. I remember telling my wife before we were married, I said, I just want you to understand one thing. I will never love you more than I love God. Sorry, but that's just the way it's going to be. She's like, wait, wait, let me process this. What did you just say? And that's an important thing to draw out. If you really love God, then you're going to be loyal to God. Secondly, it says there in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The Catholics like to take that part of, they take that part of the law out. They don't like that. Ah, I got too many images, you know. But it's there. It's in the word of God. Um, they have a problem with that commandment. So secondly, love is faithful. Love is faithful. This is what he's, he's, he's telling us here. You're not going to be off worshiping other things and then trying to worship me at the same time. It's loyal, it's single-minded, it's not fickle, and it's faithful. It keeps the promise. It's devoted to that object of love. It, it obeys what the object of love asks it to obey. It's another you might say, dimension of this love. Third thing there, and it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What's this? Love is reverent. 
It means you're not going to use your God's name in a, as a cuss word. People do it all the time. I hear it all the time. I mean, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not something that I don't expect from them. They're, they're unbelievers. They don't know. But sometimes I'll point it out. Not in, oh, shame on you. Got the coffee shop one time was cussing. He, ah, Jesus, that's Jesus. You know. Friend, and I just said, hey, um, I just have a quick question for you. I don't mean to judge you or anything, but I just want to ask you a question. Sure, well, what's up? So I just heard you talking, and you used, you know, Jesus Christ in your sentence several times, not in an honoring way. Oh, sorry, sorry, Reverend. I said, I'm not a Reverend, I'm just a pastor, but, you know, just, just relax. You know, that's not my point. Oh, I, I didn't want to be disrespectful. I said, well, it is disrespectful, not to me, but to God. I said, did you ever ask yourself this question? And he goes, what's that? I go, why don't you say, ah, oh, Buddha. They're all Confucius, man. Can't believe this. He goes, you know, that's a really good question. I said, I know, you might want to think about that. See, God is is reverent. He's apart from all others. And fourthly there, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. What does that mean? It means love is, is holy. Just that, love is holy. It's something that's set apart onto him. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, the Sabbath is which day? Saturday. Okay, so next time somebody gives you a lecture about working on Sunday, I mean, think about it. If, if, if the whole deal was, you know, oh, you can't do any work on Sunday, you know, I'd be in trouble. A lot of people in ministry would be in trouble all the time because this is our livelihood, right? This is what we do. So, you know, and a lot of it happens on Sundays. So it's not talking to that. Once again, don't get caught up in the strictness of it. It's saying basically, you know what? God gave us the Sabbath as a day of rest, all right, so the principle is this, you know, don't overwork yourself. Don't work yourself to death. If you're working seven days, 24-7, you got a problem. Because I guarantee you, God doesn't fit into that schedule anywhere. So you have to stop and you have to say, okay, wait, what's the principle? The principle is, you know what, work six days and rest the seventh. It doesn't matter if your seventh day is Monday or Wednesday. or It doesn't matter. But just use that principle in living your life. Love recognizes the place of God. That's what this is saying. Love sets apart itself for devotion and worship. See, if you say you love God, guess what? Part of your life is going to be caught up in worshiping the God you love. If you say you're in love with God... You're, you're going to, you know what, serve the God that you're in love with. You're going to desire to obey, to keep his commandments. You're going to be faithful to his word. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in all those things. None of us are. But that's going to be the desire of your heart. See, if you find yourself... Oh, in the Bible, I just, I don't want to read it. I just, I don't know. It just doesn't speak to me. But I'm a Christian. We got a problem. Because the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says, you know what? If you are in Christ, if you're a new creation in Christ, you're going to desire the words of this book like you've desired nothing else. As a matter of fact, it even gives us an illustration. It says you're going to desire them like a newborn baby craves its mother's milk. Most of you probably have had children. Most of you probably had newborn children at one point in your life, and that baby was hungry. Guess what? They let you know. You know, they don't just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, mom, you know, in the next half hour or so, you know, you might want to think of putting something in my, my stomach here. No. What do they do? They start to cry. And they don't stop crying until that need, that craving is satisfied. That's how intense a believer's hunger and thirst for the word of God should be. And unfortunately, we've allowed the world and all this clutter to clutter 
that craving just kind of off the chart. So, you know, if we, if we make the sun church once a week, man, we're doing really good, pat ourselves on the back, and, you know, we've satisfied the, the Christian duty, and we can kind of sleep away the rest of the guilt the rest of the week. But you know what? We'll be there on Sunday. No, love recognizes the place of God in your life. And so it's, it's important that we realize that. And then he goes on, and we'll just go through these quickly. Honor your father and mother. Remember, these are the ones that relate to each other now, these commandments. What's that mean? It means love is respectful. Father and a mother are a sign of respect. Not so much in our culture, but back in their culture, definitely. It should be in our culture. The idea that we bow to authority. It respects those who are worthy of respect. See, that's the whole, the whole issue, you know, where the NFL has just got this whole thing wrong, you know, with the bowing and kneeling at the national anthem. What's that do? It disrespects our country. Now, you know, if you want to disrespect our country, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. But you might want to think of playing in the NFL in India or some other country. Oh, wait, it's not there. Oh, that's right. So you're here in our country making billions of dollars, and you're going to disrespect the flag and the country and all that that stands for? See, it's a, it's a loss of respect across the board. That's the culture we live in. I mean, you may not agree with those in authority over us. You may not agree with the president. That's fine. But respect the office. See, now we're starting to lose respect for the office. And then we lose respect for our country, and, and we realize, wow, where are we going here? And it doesn't matter whether we're speaking of the United States or we're speaking of Mexico or we're speaking of India or we're speaking of China. Anybody from their country should respect the origin from which they have come. But then he says, thou shalt not kill, shalt not murder. Love is protective, right? The desire is to protect, not to slaughter. Love doesn't slaughter. This is, a, this is a hard one sometimes. I saw an interview with a young girl who tried to kill her newborn baby. And she said, well, I love, I love, I love the baby. It's, it's not that. It's just an inconvenience right now. Okay, she doesn't love the baby. She's not being protective of that child. It believes, this kind of love believes every life is what? Sacred. It's God-given. That everybody, I don't care what kind of background you're from, what country you're from, what color your skin is, everyone, the Bible says, is created in the image of God. See, that's, that's what the Bible clearly states. So we shouldn't go around killing each other. And then it says, you shall not commit adultery. Love doesn't defile other people. Love lives to exalt what is holy, what is pure, what is good, what is virtuous. Love does not steal. In other words, love is unselfish. You don't take what belongs to someone else. Saw on a version of cops one time this they set up a sting car you know you know a sting cars it's a police car without any markings and you know it's kind of an undercover thing and they put a like a thousand dollar bicycle in the back trunk the trunk was open and they put a purse kind of on the front front seat there and they parked it in this liquor store parking lot and the undercover officer just kind of walked off well it took all but like 10 minutes you know, people come over, oh, I'll take this bike. And the gal was reaching in, in for the, the purse. 
And they caught him. And the girl kept on saying, why well, didn't do anything wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. And they kept on saying, half of your body was in the car trying to get that purse. You took the purse. And in the end, after all this argument, the police officer summed it up this way. It's real basic. Don't take things that aren't yours. And off to jail they went. You know, what, what is that? It's selfishness. You shall not bear false witness. What's that mean? Love is truthful. Love is truthful. You shall not covet. Deals with love being content. Content. Our society is filled with discontent. The goal of marketing is what? To create discontent in your life. To create discontent in your heart. So though when that new Apple iPhone 8 comes out, man, you just got to have it. Why? I mean, when I heard it was glass in the front and glass on the back, I said, yeah, <laughs> I'll pass on that one. But, and there's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing wrong with new things. I'm not saying that. But the idea also has to kind of be balanced out by a certain contentment in our heart. So then back to Romans. A little sideline there in Exodus. Hopefully you understand some of the law of God a little bit better. Just to close off here, though, he lists those four commandments. And then in verse 10, he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. He sums it up. And he says, look, love the neighbor as yourself. And then he says, because of that, or therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Love fulfills the whole law. The second half fulfills the second part of the great law. Love thy neighbor as thyself. From five on down, those commandments. We saw how that happens. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. You can sum up. John MacArthur summed up this, 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 this section of Scripture. and He said, you know what? I'll, I'll basically leave you with this. He says, I'll say this. God says, if you want to understand how to fulfill the law that I've given you, it's real basically. Basic. And he said, as God, he says, love me, it's God speaking, and love men. Love me and love men. That's what it's all about. With the kind of love that I love you with. That's the fulfillment of the law. And so when we stop and we think about that, we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, do we see this kind of love in our hearts? Do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Do we love God Desire to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind? Or are we just like a Pharisee, a legalist, keeping the law out of fear? Keeping the law out of self-interest? Never really fulfilling its intent. We're just kind of playing the game so it looks good on the outside. You may be able to restrain yourself from adultery. You may be able to restrain yourself from murder and from lying, coveting, all that. And you may restrain yourself from that because you don't want to be going to jail or fear of getting caught. But that's not fulfilling the law. That's superficial. See, to fulfill the law, it has to come from that law, that love that is in you. And the only time that we can experience that love is when we come to Christ and we realize that, you know what? It's not about me. It's about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for me. The difference between being religious and being a born-again follower, a Christian, someone who is a Christ follower, it comes down to two words. If you're here this morning and you're religious, you're basing all of your, your spiritual life on one word, D-O, what you do. It all boils down to what you do. 
That's, that's the thing. If I go to church, if I pray, if I do this, if I do that, and you're just burdened with all the stuff you've got to do to earn God's favor. But you know what? For those of us who have trusted in Christ and his work on Calvary and have come to faith in him and have seen him transform us into to something that is brand new, we understand it based on another word, and that is D-O-N-E, what was done for us. On Calvary. When you put your faith and your trust in what Christ has done on the cross, that this perfect Son of God lived a perfect life here on this earth, and then he was beaten and crucified. A horrible death. But even more than the physical was the spiritual. The fact that he hung on a cross, and in a moment in time, somehow, I don't understand how this happened. But God had to turn his back on God. It says the father wasn't even able to look at the son because he was covered with the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And he paid for that sin. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I ask you, what are you waiting for? I'm sure those people who went to that Las Vegas concert were out for a great time. They never realized that maybe that night their life was going to be taken. Father, we pray this morning that as we close our time in prayer and and then a song, Lord, we ask that you would use your words to stir our hearts as Christians for self-evaluation, self-examination, Lord, that we wouldn't just take for granted this faith that you have given us in Christ, this new life that we have in our relationship with you. But Lord, that we would be diligent about it, that we would crave the word of God. Father, that we would desire to spend time together as believers in fellowship and studying your word and prayer. Lord, that it wouldn't just be a, well, church, go to Sunday kind of thing. But, Lord, that we would have that desire every day of the week. And, Lord, that we would have a burden for the lost, that we would leave these four walls and go out of this place with a message of hope and forgiveness that only Christ can offer. That we'd be diligent to be in prayer for the ministry and the missionaries and and all those ministries that happen here in this place. That you would honor that and that you would build our fellowship up in a way that would be honoring to you. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would not leave this place without speaking to someone, without making sure that they can know without a, without a doubt that if their life was required of them today, that they would be with you in glory. Not because of who they are, but because of what you've done for them through Christ. The Bible says that if we'll simply turn from our sin, if we'll repent, that's what that means, turn, a change, 180 degree change, you're no longer looking at your sin, you're looking at the Savior. And you're realizing that your sin is condemning you, that burden, that weight of sin that won't ever go away. No matter how much you do, Christ can take that away today when you cry out to him and you ask him to save you. Lord, be merciful to me, a Savior. That's in your heart right now. Just pray that between you and God right now. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Show me your truth. Give me a hunger for your word. Teach me. Draw me to yourself. Save me. God will answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. We pray for our fellowship across the way, Lord. We ask that you would just bless our time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.